Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So I have a question for you this morning. Have you ever been at a loss for words because of a kindness someone did or a dream come true or an overwhelming, beautiful moment where it just left you speechless? Huh? Anybody had that experience before? I was left speechless my senior year in college. Uh, my friends ambushed me in my bunk at 1.40 a.m. That's right, a.m. Wrapped me in my blanket threw my sturdy, dink, dirty, stinky clothes bag over my head, thankfully emptied it before doing so, carried me to the car, threw me in the back of my car, and drove me to Denny's for 24-hour breakfast on my birthday. The reason it was 8.40 in the morning is because I was always getting up to do a 3.30 a.m. shift at UPS, working my way through college. I was speechless in part because I had only been asleep for less than two hours and wasn't fully cognizant. And when I finally woke up, what woke me up was the realization that all I had on was my shorts and a blanket and they allowed me to put my work boots on. So we get out and we walk into Denny's and I've got my bare legs above my work boots showing wrapped in a blanket and there are two police officers there on break who met us at the door deciding whether they were going to arrest me because of what was or what wasn't underneath the blanket that day. Oh. They let us in. We had a good time. They laughed. One of my all-time favorite moments in life, though, was when Derek, my oldest, met uh, his younger baby sister, Elise, for the very first time in the hospital. I can still picture it. It's just one of the favorite memories of my entire life. At three years old, Derek was a talker. Uh, but the moment he first saw Elise and held her in his arms, he couldn't do anything but smile. We asked him all sorts of questions, how he was feeling. He, no word could come out of his mouth. He was speechless at this little miracle he was holding in his arms. And then in a moment, like kids are, it was over, and Elise was born on Halloween, and Derek, all he could talk about was wanting to go get candy. So we left, <laughs> and we went on, right? When we're left speechless, isn't it true that there's this, this, this awkward moment? Our minds and our hearts try to catch up, to try to figure out what's going on, what to do next in that moment. This past few weeks, we've been reflecting on Jesus and how he came to live among us and die and secure our forgiveness on the cross. And when he died on the cross, in that moment, he left the disciples wondering and in despair. I mean, everything they had hoped for, everything they had lived for, everything they had endured, separation from their family for the last three years to pursue following him was obliterated. It was gone. And then the resurrection. He's really alive. And this act of love and this power that that represented is so vivid, so overwhelming, I'm sure it left the disciples speechless, at least for a moment. And it certainly elicited the questions of what next, right? And the what next that we see recorded in the eyewitness accounts are utter transformation. 
By the time we get to the the passage we're going to look at today, 50 days later, there's this boldness, there's this compelling joy, and there is this clear, all-encompassing, motivating sense of mission for their lives. In the series that we're starting today called, called Next, we're looking at what the disciples of Jesus and the church did after they experienced the resurrection and what they did during that time that made their lives so transform and made the church into something that became world-changing. Years ago, back when you actually still had to navigate your way to places in the car by something on paper that was called a map, you remember those things? I was on a business trip to the Texas Gulf Coast, and there were all sorts of problems with the airlines. So instead of getting in in the afternoon, I got in late at night. And the result was I had to find my way uh, to this remote place on the beach that was fairly new that I'd never been to. It didn't have a lighted sign. It didn't even have an address marker on the road. And it was a hard-to-spot place on a dark, moonless night along a road surrounded by dunes and tall grass. I got to the place that I thought it was, and it looked different than I expected. I really wasn't sure if I was at the right place, and I was wondering as I went up to the doorbell to ring to be let in if I was going to wake up the wrong person and hopefully not wake up an angry person with a gun. Thankfully, it was the right place. Have you ever gotten to a destination in your life and things looked very different than you thought they would? It leaves you feeling unsure. It leaves you feeling tentative and a little disoriented. Today's text that we're going to look at, we see the followers of Jesus arrive at a destination that Jesus had told them to expect and look for, but it looked extremely different than what they thought or what anybody else thought it would look like. The disciples had been with Jesus for three years. He died. He rose again. They spent, 40, they spent a large part of 40 days with him. And the eyewitness accounts recorded after 40 days, Jesus ascended to heaven. Think about what that time was like. I'm sure from the minute that Jesus rose from the dead, all the expectations that they had prior to him dying were immediately ignited again. They were expecting Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom, to overthrow the Romans, to to move in power. I mean, what better leader can you have than a leader who can't be killed if you're going to go to battle, right? I mean, that's better. My kids, my boys insisted on taking me to to Logan. It's, It's better than Logan, right, in the Marvel series. But disciples, disciples still don't fully get what Jesus' plans are. They still experience ups and downs. They're still trying to understand this question, what next? And before Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus told them this. He said, wait to start ministering until you receive this resurrection power, this power that we call the Holy Spirit who is part of God. What was it like, can you imagine, for them to wait for that gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said would be better for them to have than if he stayed I mean, there had to be this sense of anticipation, the sense of excitement, the sense of wonder. And then 10 days after Jesus' ascension, just 50 days after he was, uh, his death and resurrection, we run into this festival that the Jews had every year called Pentecost. 
And the streets of Jerusalem, again, are once again are packed. There's major rush hour. There's over 100,000 extra people who have come to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, speaking multiple languages. And then we see in the text that we're going to look at today, right before it, this large group of disciples, likely about maybe 120 men and women gathered together in a house in Jerusalem, worshiping and praying and, and the promise, this, this promise that Jesus gave of this post-resurrection gift of the Holy Spirit coming, comes. And the text, the eyewitness account, describes it as coming like a rushing, mighty, violent wind at 9 a.m. in the morning. And in that moment, after all of the waiting anticipation, the Holy Spirit comes in a way they did not expect and they had never seen before. We know from the, the account that the disciples must have been allowed because even the crowdy, crowd in the noisy street could hear the disciples speaking in tongues and they start to gather people from modern-day Iran and Turkey and Egypt and Libya and Rome all hear them and they say, how is it these uneducated Galileans are speaking the praises of God so clearly in our native languages? And it confused them. And it piqued their curiosity at the same time. In fact, the text says the crowd started to wonder at one point, had these guys had too much to drink? Were they drunk? I mean, it seems to have been that they were this happy, joyful, kind of exuberant loud, right? This is the launch of the early church, the first burst of resurrection power to be experienced by the followers of Jesus. And what power it was, because that day, people who gathered around the house, 3,000 people became convinced that Jesus was who he says he was and decided to follow him and were baptized. The story that we just talked about is found in Acts 2, and you can read the part that we're not going to read that, that describes what I just said. But we pick it up at verse 17. Right after the passerbys had questioned whether they are drunk, Peter gets up and begins to explain what's going on, and he refers to the prophet Joel in this first part here to start explaining it. He says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This is going to be kind of a long passage. We're going to go all the way through it, then we're going to come back and talk about it uh, and try to distill some things from it. It goes, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. So what Peter is basically saying right now up front is, this that you see right now is that that Joel prophesied. And he goes on and finishes that prophecy saying, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter starts to speak for himself. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God, to, do, to you by miracles, wonders and, by doing wonders and miracles and signs, which God did among them through you. And you yourselves know this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then what you see in the text is he goes on and Peter goes on and starts to support his point by quoting from a prophecy King David made about the Messiah that the crowd would have known, they would have related to, they would have understand that. Let's pick it up again in verse 32. And God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the, the Father of the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, 
Let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's an amazing passage. We're going to take a look at it, but would you join me first in just praying and asking God to, to help us connect this to our lives today. Lord, we do ask and thank you that your presence is here, that your spirit that we just read about is here with us now. And Lord, I pray that you would come to each and every one of us today, that we would encounter you that you would encounter our thoughts, that you would guide our thoughts, and that we would see how you want us to respond to grow deeper, to understand you better, and to be filled with the resurrection power ourselves that you promise. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's ask this question. What does Peter's response highlight that can help us answer the question, what next? There are at least two major lessons in this passage that we read today that we're going to look at about how we can become a dynamic church and how we can individually discover a vibrant faith. And first and foremost, that happens when we have our lives and our lives are centered in curiosity to see and participate in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to lightly touch on this point of the Holy Spirit today. We're going to explore it a lot more over the next two weeks, but it is the foundation. It is the backdrop of everything we will talk about. Jesus, before ascending, explicitly instructed the disciples, wait till you receive this resurrection power, this Holy Spirit. And then what we see happening after the Jesus, Jesus instructs the disciples to do that is they go into this time where they have this kind of extended time of waiting together, of praying, of worshiping, of discussing, of, of studying, of seeking God to lead them to this point and experience this. For us to learn to follow the Holy Spirit, the point there is that we need to also have focused habits in our life of seeking God, of learning to worship, of learning to experience how the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to you and I today and how he works today. The second major lesson we're going to look at today, which we're going to spend the rest of our time on, that helps us become a dynamic church and helps us have a vibrant faith, is the joy of invitationally sharing our faith in Jesus. Because Jesus dying and forgiving us and rising again to give us the same spirit uh, that empowered him, that is exciting. That is good, great news. But when you think about sharing your faith with someone else, what are some of the feelings and thoughts that pop up in your heart and your mind? Is it discomfort? Are, are there nerves? Does it feel awkward? Uh, maybe it's a feeling of conflict and few of us like conflict, and so that's not a really present, pleasant motivator, right, is it? It may feel beyond us even because there are, there are questions we know that people have that we don't feel confident we can answer well, so how could I do this, right? Right? 
And then add to that our current culture of our day and, and conversing and f- about our faith with others is, is, I think, harder today in America than it ever has been in American history. The Barna Research Group came out with a study a while ago. They distilled it into a book called Good Faith that illustrates how hard this can be. I want you to take just a moment to turn to the screens and listen to the authors as they share the two core findings of their book and their study. We study Christians all over America, and we know they're increasingly feeling pressured because of the cultural winds seem to be shifting. If you believe that you should share your faith with someone, try to convert them, that's viewed by 60% of Americans to be extremists. 42% of Americans believe that people of faith are actually part of the problem that our culture faces today. Let's face it, it is getting harder to have conversations. That's just what you want to be called as an extremist, right? Isn't that a comforting thought to realize that 60% of Americans say that if you share your faith with the goal, with at least part of your heart and goal to be able to encourage them to consider becoming a part of your faith, that you are extremist in their ideas. It's harder today to talk about our faith. It is more prone to alienating friendship and even prone to legal problems than it, today than it ever has been. And personally, I think we all feel that, don't we? And it makes us uncomfortable. And yet our circumstances today aren't, re- aren't really any different than the first century. For Peter that day standing up and preaching, it could and would, we will see a couple chapters later in Acts, lead to his arrest, imprisonment, and beating. And that was common for many in that day. So a question is, in the face of that difficulty, why did they still have so much joy in sharing their faith with other people? And why were they so motivated and bold? And it comes back to them understanding so personally the forgiveness and love of God and understanding even beyond that the power of the Holy Spirit and knowing that that changed everything for them. And they wanted everyone to experience and enjoy the same thing that they did. Now, we're going to talk about his message and how that can might help us think about sharing our faith in a moment. But before we jump into that, uh, I want to get to something that I think we have to acknowledge in this text because it, 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 it has some confrontational statements in it and it makes it really uncomfortable for us to think about this text. And so we're just going to deal with those confrontational statements, kind of that big elephant in this scripture before we move into looking at it further. Peter says in verse 23... You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's just a really fun conversation to have with someone sitting over lunch, right? Saying to them, hey, dude, you and other wicked people crucified Jesus. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Sounds kind of judgmental, don't you think? Allow me to suggest that a big part of why we hear what Peter says in some other places as harsh is because we read it like we read emails. How many of you have ever sent or received an email or a text that was taken far more strongly or critically than it was ever meant to communicate? Anybody here? Yeah, quite a lot of us, right? We know all too well that reading things in black and white text without context can completely change the tone and intent of what is meant to be communicated. I'm going to submit to you that if you understand the context of this passage that we're talking about today, that Peter is direct, 
and clear, even inviting. But he's not harsh in it. First, you have to understand what's happening in this context. There's there's confusion, right? There's wondering what this Holy Spirit thing that they're seeing going on is. In times of confusion, what do you typically do in your communication? You typically are more simple and clear and direct. So you help people focus, right? It's a, it's a little bit like if you're in a large crowd pa- uh, uh, that's really packed and it's going every d- direction, pressing against you, and you're with your young child, you grab them by the hand and you say, stay with me, right? That's direct, it's strong, but it's not harsh to say that, is it? Right? Second, Peter's directness in this passage is actually a response to to being invited by the people hearing him to answer some questions for them. They're already curiously drawn to what's going on by the Holy Spirit. So this is not rude confrontation going on. This is clear, responsive explanation going on. Third, remember the tone of what the Holy Spirit is doing, the way the people are responding. We, we heard it in the text a little bit, or I alluded to it in the text. The disciples are looking a little drunk to them, but they're not looking angry drunk. They're not looking incoherent drunk because they're also saying, no, they're speaking clearly the praises of God in my language. I don't understand this. So they suspect as they're stopping that these people are happy drunks, right? The tone is joy, and tone is everything, Right? in our communication. Fourth, look at the very last verse we read, verse 37. How do the people Peter is speaking to respond to him? They respond to him with an endearing word, a word of identifying with them in a warm way. They say, brothers, right? There is a joyful tone, a humble tone, inviting tone and that invites warmly identifying with them and with God even in the midst of very direct statements. Now let's let's jump back and let's go back through the text and let's isolate some simple concepts that Peter is communicating and I don't want you to use these concepts as like this is the outline I have to follow anytime I talk to somebody about my faith, right? Because the rarely will you ever do that. In fact, rarely do I even have the time when I'm preaching to make it through all these points. So you're certainly not going to make over a cup of coffee with somebody, right? Most of the time, God's Spirit brings up opportunities for you to have a short conversation about one or two of these ideas Peter shares because people tend to discover faith in Jesus as through a process of months and years, trying things out and figuring it out. Now, let me pause there for a second. If you're a person here who does not yet say, I really fully believe in Jesus, I'm not yet a convinced follower of Jesus... This conversation to you today can be really important, even though I'm talking mainly about how we share our faith, because the key questions, the key experiences, the key decisions that we're going to talk about today can be used by you to guide your process of seeking to try to even figure out whether you want to follow this Jesus. You will have to go through these same things. So it can be really helpful to your own spiritual journey in this process. Peter starts answering the question by telling them something very simple. He basically says, God wants to positively engage your life. 
He starts with sharing hope with others, that God loves you, God pursues you, God wants to be involved right now in your life and has a wonderful plan and purpose for your life. And this is something that's really fun and easy that we all can share. We love being encouraging to people, right? Peter simply begins saying, listen, people, remember the prophet Joel that we all revere? That, who said that one day the Spirit would be given freely to all people? Well, this is that. You are experiencing that right now. Notice what he says. The Spirit is given to all people. What we often don't realize in this text is we think it's just given to believers. But he's saying, no, it's given to all people. I mean, granted, the believers who accept and follow Jesus, the promise is that the Holy Spirit resides with us in a way that is more intimate, more powerful, and works through us more powerfully in many ways. But the Spirit is at work drawing all people to this amazing resurrection of life. He wants everyone to experience that kind of life. In a documentary or series put together by the Lausanne movement, one of the largest uh, Christian movements in the world, uh, it's called More Than Dreams. They actually document Muslims who are coming to faith in Jesus because the Spirit of God shows up to them in dreams. One of the stories actually tells of a guy named Khalil, a radical Egyptian terrorist who was set out to discredit the Bible but didn't feel like he could. He still continued to despise and hate Christians and Jews until his heart was changed when Jesus appeared to him in a dream and he decided to follow Jesus. It radically changed him. See, Peter is pointing out this good work of the Holy Spirit, both in the disciples who have received it and in the crowds being drawn to them and the Holy Spirit in this moment, helping people see this is that. That may look like you in your own life sharing how the Holy Spirit worked in answering prayer in your life at one time or how the Holy Spirit brought healing to your life in a way that you can share it with your friend and say God wants to be the same kind of involved in your life as he has been in mine in a very inviting way. And that may look like you pointing out the gifts in another person and just saying, I love how beautifully God has made you and how God is working through you right now, even before you believe. You may recall Wendy shared a couple of years ago about a friend of hers in Oregon who was a self-described heathen, and that's the nice way to put it, really fringe culture and practices. They were talking about parenting one day, and and this friend out of the blue shared a quote to Wendy that Wendy had had the same quote that God was kind of highlighting to her when she was praying over our son. And it was like the Holy Spirit was confirming to, to, to Wendy how to pray and how to speak to our son through this unbelieving friend. So Wendy told the friend about this cool coincidence and how she thought God was using her friend in that moment to give wisdom to how to help parent our son. And, and her friend laughed, of course. I mean, what do you expect? She laughed. She says, and she said, I don't want to take any responsibility for speaking for the Godhead and me, Godhead me, this heathen, you know. But, but it made an impact on her because in that moment there was something she sensed of the Holy Spirit being with her in that moment. See, identifying how God is at work in someone or in a situation or, and highlighting that, that's just fun encouragement and, and the fun ability to talk to people about how God is real right now. The next piece of what we can help people come to realize when we're sharing our faith verbally 
uh, in Peter's message is that we encourage people to call on the name of the Lord. That's kind of a funny term, call on the name of the Lord. And you're probably never going to quote that to a friend because it's so foreign, it doesn't make sense in our culture. But, But so what does the phrase mean? And it means something that I suspect really makes logical sense to all of us. I'll bet you've thought these thoughts before. If Jesus is God and, and, and he's the one who created us and all that exists, then it makes sense that in order to follow him, we need to surrender our will to his. We need to declare our allegiance to him. and We need to look to him as the ultimate source of our wisdom and power, Right? See, Peter is inviting us to more than believing in Jesus because we can believe in someone or something without allegiance or obedience, can't we? In fact, we can even ask God to forgive us and we can even ask God to save us from our situation without ever putting ourselves in right, surrendered relationship with God. See, what he's saying here is it's more than believing in Jesus. It's declaring your allegiance. It's declaring that you surrender your will to God's will for your life. See, we want to believe God saves everyone. And part of the reason we want to believe that is because God explicitly says he does want everyone to be saved. But Peter is saying we have to ask We have to put ourselves and make that choice to put ourselves in right, surrendered relationship with God in order to realize that. The offer is there, but we have to receive it. See, Peter goes on to extend this calling on the Lord into this, what I think is kind of a logical next relational decision and action step. When Peter says what we talked about earlier, those direct statements, you with the help of wicked men and you who crucified, uh, there's something powerful powerful and freeing in that that he's trying to get at and what he's trying to accomplish. What is he trying to accomplish in the lives of the hearers by those statements? And it's this. He's helping, trying to help people take personal responsibility to turn to God and ask forgiveness. So do you remember in your own life the power and the beauty of the last time you took personal responsibility? You asked somebody to forgive you and you received that forgiveness? Do you remember the feeling of freedom and relief and peace? and joy that happened in that moment for you. Now, we're going to talk about that more, but but I want to go back to the tone of this text again for just a second because there's something more that's really powerful going on in this text. Remember, next to Jesus, Peter, as the lead disciple, is likely the best-known face of Jesus' group, right? All the prominent religious leaders know his face, And Jesus, through his three-plus years of ministry, he had ministered to well over 100,000 people, maybe many, many more than that. And many of those people he was with repeatedly. They came to see him for hours. Sometimes they stayed days listening to him. And you've got to remember, during that time, Jesus is this rock star leader, and therefore his closest disciples are also admired, and they're also very visible during this time. Peter's face is probably as well-known in Israel as anyone during that era. Now, let's take that thought just a little further. Peter, with that level of public recognition, 50 days prior to this, he had denied Jesus. 
What do you think the rumor mill on the tabloids of Jesus' day did with that story when he denied Jesus? I mean, his story of denial almost certainly spread rapidly, at least through Jerusalem where the denial took place and where they are on this day that we're talking about in this passage today. Think about it a little further. Peter at this time is also only 10 days removed from the Jesus confronting him three times, asking Peter to take personal responsibility for each of the three times he denied him. See, Peter is saying what he's saying in this text, not from self-righteousness, but from deeply, personally identifying with the need to take personal responsibility for his sin and the awesome, restoring freedom of forgiveness that Jesus made real in his life just 10 days prior to this. Can you imagine just for a moment then the tone and the power of Peter's presence as the messenger in this moment? where many in the crowd knew him, many had admired him, many knew about his sin and failure and his betrayal of Jesus. And now here stands Peter at the center of an outpouring of God's spirit and power, and he's confident. He's no longer ashamed and timid from his failure. He's confident, peacefully saying, come on, guys, own your part and you can receive the forgiveness and the confidence and the peace that I received as well. See, who Peter is in this moment speaks loudly, even though it speaks with a soft, approachable humility in this moment. See, until we take personal responsibility and we tend to look at God and we see him as judgmental and angry with us or, or, or at the very least, he's demanding beyond what we can do and so, so he's, he's, he's just, you know, whatever, right? When God in reality is pursuing us with amazing, persistent patience to win our hearts, to forgive us, to restore us and increase the positive impact of our lives. But until we stop avoiding and blaming and we take personal responsibility for our sin, we cannot see nor can we receive the gift that is trying so hard to come our way. So the question that we have for us as we share our faith is this. How can we invite people to personal responsibility so that they too can see and consider receiving this awesome gift that we know and have experienced? How can you tell the story of your personal taking of responsibility for your sin and how you discovered the peace and the love and the forgiveness and the freedom that Jesus gives you so that you identify with the person you're talking to, not above them, but you identify with their sin because you're taking responsibility and you caringly invite them, even if you're using direct words, to receive the gift waiting for them. Isn't it true, isn't it true that when we take responsibility, we receive forgiveness, that there is within us this burst of relief, there's this burst of life, there's this burst of energy, there's this burst of joy that we get to walk in. 
No. More often than not, helping people take responsibility for their sin is done as much by your actions as it is by your words. I mean, when a friend sins and you discover that sin, maybe even that sin is against you and they expect rejection, if you press in and love them and you're patient with them, like Jesus was with Zacchaeus, like Jesus was with the adulterous woman and so many other people, it is in that moment that you tangibly demonstrate God's love and God's faithfulness to them. And even when they are faithless, you demonstrate God's faithful love. Then at some point from that base of love and trust, you you get to have that conversation where you verbally can invite them to the same freedom you discovered from taking personal responsibility for your sin. For Peter that day, helping them take personal responsibility resulted through the power of the Holy Spirit in 3,000 people becoming followers of Jesus and experiencing that burst of freedom and joy and peace and life that comes from us receiving loving forgiveness. And that forgiveness, it was given because Jesus went to the cross to take the penalty for your sin, for my sin, so that we, you and I, could be forgiven So in one sense, you and I nailed Jesus to that cross. And yet Jesus went there as well, willingly desiring to love us and rescue us. There's so much joy when the light comes on in a person that they can, then they realize they can be honest with our sin and I can be forgiven and I can be loved at the same time. How can you help people that you know and love have that kind of light go on for them? That's what this point is all about. Peter goes on to highlight that after a decision to follow Jesus, it needs to be followed by publicly identifying with Jesus and celebrating your decision through baptism. Jesus was baptized and he invites all of us who are his followers to publicly declare and celebrate our decision to follow him and identify with him in water baptism. James, the brother of Jesus who didn't actually believe in Jesus until after Jesus was resurrected, writes, faith without works is dead. We can never earn our salvation. That's a gift from God. But if we place our faith in God in that gift, our life will show signs of our belief in our actions, is what James is trying to say. Maybe you're here today and you've been listening and and you realize you've never responded to these simple steps that define a decision and actions of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe you believe Jesus, uh, maybe you believe Jesus and you, you, ha- you want a relationship with him, but you've never taken personal responsibility for your sin and asked Jesus to forgive you. Or, or maybe you have done most of those things, or maybe all of those things, and you've decided to follow Jesus, but for some reason you've never been baptized to celebrate and publicly declare that you follow Jesus. Wherever you are in this today, you can take another step of decision today. For some of you, that means that you're going to make a decision to follow Jesus today as your Lord, and you're going to consider being baptized next week as we celebrate next week. For some of you, you made that decision to follow Jesus a while ago, but you never were baptized. Well, why not be baptized? Why, why not publicly declare your identification with Jesus and publicly celebrate your faith in baptism as Jesus asks you? Faith put into action 
is where resurrection is po- power is found. It's where our, the Holy Spirit intersects our lives. But so often we look at this and think about sharing our faith and we think, well, Peter, I, I can't do what Peter did. And we look at other people who are gifted and, and share and speak and, and preach and we think, I'll leave the job to them, right? But that's not the early church. And that's not how the Holy Spirit worked then or work now. In the immediate verses that right after what we read this morning, you see the 3,000 who came to faith that day turning around and joyfully celebrating their faith by sharing their faith and working in the power of the Holy Spirit to share that faith on a daily basis. They were ordinary people doing extraordinary things, sharing a simple faith. I want you to take a look at a video. Uh, Jeremy, I asked him to do an illustration for today's message, but he's out of town today, so he videotaped it for us. Would you take a moment to listen? Good morning, Quest. I hope you're having a wonderful morning as you worship today. I'm sorry I can't be there with you. I'm with my family down in Kentucky. We're, we're meeting our new nephew for the first time today. But I wanted to just take a moment to talk a little bit about what Ross is preaching today because it's a powerful truth that we all need to know And it's also very personal to my life. This idea that God wants to use us, ordinary people, to do extraordinary things. That all we have to do is surrender to Him on a regular basis. Surrender to His will and to do the work that He wants us to do. It reminds me of Mordecai Ham. And I know that many of you may not know who he is. I didn't really know who he was until this past week. Mordecai was a young man who gave his life to Jesus at at the age of nine. He came from a line of preachers. In fact, there were eight generations of preachers before him, 150 years of preaching that went before Mordecai surrendered his life to Jesus. Mordecai, at that moment, he knew that God was calling him to be a preacher, to be an evangelist, to go out and to share the good news of Jesus to anyone who would listen to him. And he did that. He did it faithfully for 46 years. And then something really profound happened to Mordecai. One night when he was in Charlotte, North Carolina, it was in 1934, he was preaching a revival and there was a young man in the audience who heard his words and understood for the first time how much Jesus loved him. And that night, Billy Graham surrendered his life to Jesus. Billy Graham. And I think about this. I think about this young man, Mordecai Ham, and his willingness to go out every single day and share his love of Jesus with everyone that he can. And then one day he gets this opportunity to share. And Billy Graham is listening. Now we know so much about Billy Graham. He's a wonderful evangelist. In fact, in his lifetime, he shared the gospel with 215 million people in live audiences, and then countless more over TV and radio. All because Mordecai Ham was faithful to share his story with Billy. This becomes personal to me because Billy, after he surrendered his life to Jesus, he was willing to say, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, God. I'll do it. And he became an evangelist. And he started sharing Jesus with everyone who would listen to him in any way that he could. And then about... 36 years later, my mom heard Billy Graham speak. 
And my mom was in an, a, a, an unusual time in her life. She had been teaching elementary school for about three years, and there was a lot of pressure for her to perform well, and she just didn't know how to do it. And one day as she was driving to work, she was overcome by her emotions with anxiety. She pulled over to the side of the road. She felt completely helpless, and she prayed to God. She was not a Christian, um, but she, she asked God, she said, if you're real, then I need you to show me, because if you're not, then I'm going to end it all today. And that night when she got home, she turned on the TV, and there Billy Graham was, preaching a message about how much God loved her, how special she was, and how he had a call for her life. Because of Mordecai Ham being faithful to do what God called him to do, Billy Graham found Jesus. And because Billy Graham was faithful to do what he did, countless people have given their life to Jesus. But personally, what matters to me is my mom said yes to Jesus because of what Billy Graham said. You know, it's, it's amazing to think that God wants to use us. And sometimes we're not exactly sure how that's going to work out, but the reality is with the way that he's designed us, with the way that he, he's gifted us, he can do immeasurable things, things that we can't even think or imagine if we're willing to surrender to what he's called us to. So how are you going to step into the extraordinary with God by surrendering your call and your will to him? Yeah, one of the most beautiful parts of that story, yeah. One of the most beautiful parts of that story, Jeremy told me offline about his mom. When she met Jesus and encountered the Holy Spirit on that evening, she immediately started to share her faith with others. At first it was one-on-one -on -one with people, and then all of a sudden she got invited to go to small groups and then eventually started getting invited to share with larger groups. And God continues to open doors for her to share her faith with people. And she's seen the joy and experienced the joy of so many people realizing they can be real with their sin, forgiven and loved at the same time and empowered by the very Spirit of God. See, the resurrection resulted in the disciples knowing and following the Holy Spirit. And that became the central focus and desire of the early church. And out of that, sharing their faith just happened. and It became something viral for them. As we continue to look over the next few weeks how to understand how the, uh, the Holy Spirit comes and, 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 and how he wants to be in our life, I want to, I want to invite you to join me in doing what the disciples did between Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit coming, and that is simply this. I want to invite you to adjust the rhythms of your life for the next two weeks. That might be setting aside some additional time. It might be a small adjustment. If that's Just do what you can. It might be small. It might be big. To spend a little extra time praying and meditating and worshiping God, maybe reading the Bible about the Holy Spirit and, and worship God and ask God to come to you and help you encounter and understand and know how to follow the Holy Spirit better. You may know the Holy Spirit Ask for more. You may have no concept of what that means. Ask for God to reveal that to you. 
so that you can discover this God, this resurrection power that makes it possible for us to be real, to be forgiven, to be loved, and to be empowered. And you can experience the joy of sharing that with others. For some of you, that step may be joining the group that's starting this week on Tuesday, but led by Jeremy and Mandy Corbin, because they're studying a book that goes right along with the series. It's called Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. But right now, would you stand with me? And would you uh, join in worship? And just the, the Holy Spirit's here. Ask for Ask for more and just worship him right now in this moment, Lord. We just thank you for your presence. We thank you that you're always with us. We thank you that you poured out on all people. Lord, I pray that you'd help each and every one of us know that this is that, that we would know that these things that we're experiencing are you and that we would become more and more confident every day in who you are to us in the leading of your presence with us, that we would know you. So, Lord, even now as we worship, would you just come and help us to encounter you more in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.